We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. This week, we're talking all things physical activity. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined by our expert guest, Associate Professor Verity Cleland from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research, University of Tasmania. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we were recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you were listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So I'm delighted to have someone I admire and respect a lot as our expert guest today. So Associate Professor Verity Cleland is a behavioural epidemiologist and in her research, she uses a number of methods to study people's behaviour. Surveys, one-on-one interviews, focus group meetings and devices like pedometers to get accurate data about what people do in their movement as they go about their day. And I'm sure many of you, like me, can recall a time when you were super motivated to get fit and maybe start a new routine and you know, never in your life have you gotten up at 5am to go for a run, but you're like, this week, it's going to be different, I'm going to do it. And maybe that burst of motivation lasted a little while or that activity might have been short-lived or how active you are may have changed throughout your life, which is probably pretty typical, but Verity is the expert in understanding what kind of encourages people to be more active, the factors we need to consider, and I just think I love the way that, Verity, you go about taking your research and using all these different methods to really understand something that's really complex, which is people's behaviour. But to start us off, could you tell us, what are we talking about when we talk about physical activity, and when it comes to being active, are there things that can't and other things that don't? Hi, Neve. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, physical activity, what, what do we think of, what do we mean when we think about physical activity? Broadly, we define physical activity as any bodily movement. So y- you can think of, it's a, it's a very, very broad definition. So by that definition, brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth could technically be physical activity. We often then reframe that as health enhancing physical activity. And health enhancing activity is any activity that is really able to um, get your muscles working a bit harder, your heart beating a little bit faster, your breathing a little bit faster as well. So how that happens and in which situation is really, really flexible. So we often think about, um, when we think about physical activity, we often think about what you've just described, which is exercise, which we think of as a subset of physical activity. That's a type of physical activity. But there are all sorts of things working in the garden, walking the dog, you know, um, catching, walking to the bus stop to catch um, the bus, um, doing some activity at work. Um, for those who are on their feet all day, they'll know all about that. And, and it all counts. It all, it all adds up. So is how active you are throughout the day more important than doing like just one half hour burst? Um, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so our I'll revert to our national physical activity guidelines, which are based on, you know, a a large um, amount of evidence that's been collected over many years now. And they currently specify or suggest that we accumulate up to 150 minutes a week Mm -hmm. of moderate to vigorous intensity activity. So that's that activity that I was talking about that gets your heart rate going a little bit faster, you're breathing a bit faster. Um, The key difference with 
previous guidelines is that that specification is for a week, 150 minutes over a week. You could do your 150 minutes on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And that should give you the same health benefits as if you split your 150 minutes, let's say 30 minutes a day across five days. So technically... Yes, it, it all counts. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly if you're using something like a, a, a smartwatch or a pedometer to measure your activity, you'll know that um, on some days where you haven't been to the gym or for a walk, you still actually can accumulate lots and lots of steps or lots and lots of activity just through doing what you regularly do at home, whether that's, you know, you maybe you've done the vacuuming or been walking around looking after children or caring for pets or whatever it is that you do in your day um any movement is better than none oh yeah that's a good take-home message so evidence suggests that things that contribute to how much we move or how active we are um are varied and that personal environmental social factors all play a role in like how much we're up and about to me, that kind of makes sense. If I live near a beautiful natural space or a pool, maybe I'm inclined to use it more often. Or if I have like a really active friend who's always encouraging me to go for a walk, like rather than having a sit down coffee, let's grab that coffee to go. Um, that, that makes sense to me intuitively. But from your work, what kind of things influence how active a person is and how do we understand that when it can vary so much person to person? Yeah, it is a really, I, I nearly think of it as a bit like um, chaos theory. It's nearly like for each person, there there is a different constellation of stars that have to align to allow physical activity to occur. Um, you know, often people think about physical activity as a choice, an individual choice. I don't really like that approach because it puts all that responsibility on you, Neve, to get up at five o'clock in the morning when you hate mornings and you hate the gym. Why are you going to go and do that? Like, why would you? Like, you know, even myself, I'm really motivated. I've studied this area for 20 odd years. I would hate to do that. <laughs> I just, the thought of it would really, really... Um, you know, irritates me. And so one of the key things that we do find that is quite common across many people in terms of something that can support them is enjoyment of physical activity. So it's one of the most common predictors of physical activity, enjoyment. So if you don't enjoy a particular activity, don't try and do it. (laughs) Find (laughs) another one. Find something that you do enjoy. Um, And and they're you know, some people might say, oh, but I don't like anything. I'm sure if you keep thinking and you keep that really broad definition of physical activity in mind, if you love gardening, make sure you get out in the garden every day or come around to my place and do some gardening. That's <laughs> fine with me. Um, if you like riding your bike, ride your bike. If you like playing with kids in the park, kick a soccer ball around, do that. Don't force yourself to do something that you're going to hate, you're going to feel resentment towards it, and you're going to drop out after a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then you feel shame and guilt and disappointment for not doing what you were supposed to do. Um, And it just creates this really sort of downward spiral. So find something you enjoy, super important. The social factors are really important. And in my research, I've found particularly for women, the social element is is critical. Um, So that's another really important thing. So that can be as much as having a supportive person in your life who, as Neve said, you know, let's go for a, a, a coffee to go. But it could also be if you're, if you're, let's say you, you have a partner, it could be that there's some support from the partner to, you know, don't worry, I'll 
wrangle the household. I'll wrangle the household. I'll deal with that tonight. Off you go and do your work. Or if you've got children, someone to look after the children so you can go and, and do that activity. Or if you have pets, someone to take on some of that responsibility. So they are all elements of social support. It could even be someone, for example, if you don't drive for children... Or, or, or you know people without a license or whatever it might be someone to transport you to some that's also another form of social support getting you to somewhere where you can be active the other thing that I think personally it, and again in you know my research and and time and time again I think without environments that mm. support physical activity even if you find something you enjoy you have someone to encourage you but if you've got nowhere to do that activity or you're not in a safe place or it's not a nice place to be or maybe you don't have access to a particular thing that you like to do, let's say it's your thing is, I don't know, badminton, but there's no badminton centre in your area. You know, you, you need to have access to places to be active. So the environmental much um, harder to change too, layer right? is much harder to change. Um but in some ways, without it, um, we're nearly setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, a bit of a facetious question, but why is it important to look at all those things that influence someone's level of physical activity? I mean, environment, sure, we could change someone's lived environment, social, maybe we can make things slightly easier, or put, like put a childcare facility next to somewhere where women could go and be active if they have childbearing responsibilities. Um, So what kind of motivates you to look at the things that influence how active someone is? In Australia, we have around um, half of adults currently meet physical activity guidelines. So what we want to do is encourage everyone else to be more active, right? And so in order to develop strategies and think about what are the key things that we need to do to help that 50% of the population to be more active, we actually need to understand the behaviour first. And there are many different ways you can do that. You can use, um, you know, draw on, um, for example, theoretical frameworks from um, the psychology literature or sociological literature. We often use what's called a social ecological framework to guide our research in this space. And that's because it is a really broad framework that considers that individual environmental and social layers of influence on a behaviour. And the reason, um, I guess, we, we do that is, you know, t- in the past, some, of, some psychological theories that have been used to try and understand physical activity often focus just solely on the individual and on those individual sort of psychological and cognitive factors, like enjoyment, for example. But what that does is then fail to consider that people don't exist in vacuums and that they do have people around them and they do have environment environments that can support or hinder their physical activity. So I guess in order to answer your question, we want to understand those things. What are the things that make people tick, make people move or, or stop them from moving so that we can then try and do something about, about those things. We can um, create and design intervention strategies, policies that support that behaviour. Awesome. That sounds completely sensical. <laughs> Stay with us and we'll be talking more to Associate Professor Verity Cleland about strategies that can be used to support people to be more physically active. Mm-hmm. 
You are listening to That's What I Call Science. I'm Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with my expert guest, Associate Professor Verity Cleland. We're talking about physical activity, and now we're thinking about strategies that can support people to be more active. Verity was just telling us that, you know, 50% of the Australian population don't meet current recommendations, so they're not active enough, and that has long-term consequences for our health. So... There are lots of barriers to physical activity and I really like very that you're not putting all the blame on people themselves. Like, you know, it's not just people are lazy, it's actually that there's a lot of barriers in the place and it can be that it's where you live and the environment is not supportive or it could be social factors. So what current projects are you working on to investigate how people could be more physically active? Yeah, great. We've got a number of projects going on, but I guess one that I'd really like to talk to you um, about today is our Communities for Walkability project. Um, this is a project that's focusing on um, people living in rural parts of Tasmania, and it's all about understanding the what we can term the walkability of those areas. So walkability is kind of what it suggests, which is how easy or hard it is to walk around either for recreation, for leisure, or for transport, so to get to and from places. And walkability has been really well studied in urban cities, um, larger cities, but not a lot's known about how walkability looks or plays out or how we measure it in rural um, places. Being in Tasmania, which is largely rural, we're in a prime spot to get a better understanding of this issue. So in this project, we are... um, focusing on small towns so they have a population of between 200 people and 6,000 people there are 92 of those in Tasmania wow that's Um, small so yeah there there are a lot of them so that's one-fifth of our population live in these small towns and I guess that's why we're interested in them because there's a lot of them Um, and so what we're doing we've um, used some GIS technology to um, spatially map the walkability of these towns Um, and then what we're doing is choosing um, 10 towns um, with different levels of walkability as assessed by that spatial um, process um, to work with in a little bit more detail. So what we do when we work with those towns in a little bit more detail is we um, make some connections with um, local government um, who are the peak body for local government or a partner in this project. So they help us, um, you know, learn who, who introduce us basically to to someone in the town we try and identify what's called what we call a community champion and this is someone who's um you know well connected in the community they may or may not work um they may not do this as part of their job or they may do this in a, a sort of a, a voluntary capacity um and what that person does is acts as a bit of a gateway and a conduit into that town. Um, Rural towns are often really tightly connected um, and and sometimes it can be hard as an outsider to, you know, I guess, gain entry and and access into a town. Um, So we use that community champion and part of their role is to connect us with other members of the community who then go out and do walkability audits. So we have a a tool that we've developed. It's an online tool. And people um, essentially um, 
work, walk through a, a segment of their town. So there's about a kilometre segment of their town and, and complete this audit. So ask about things like what are the footpaths like? Are, they, are there even footpaths? Um, are there shoulders on the side of the road? Um, what's the traffic like? Uh, a, a whole bunch of different questions that assess walkability. So these citizen scientists, as we call them, go out and do these audits. Um, we then take that data, um, they take photos as well. We shape that up, collate it, look for common themes and then we go back to that community and say, hey, this is kind of what you were telling us. Does that make sense to you? Um, and so we sort of go through this sense-making process and then as a group we come up with some priorities. So it might be in one town, for example, that there is one key barrier that everyone is sort of identifying as, as a real barrier to, to walkability or it might be that there's a number of smaller things. Um, we did some pilot work in 2020 in three towns in Tasmania. And for, for two towns, it was, it was a major highway that was bisecting um, the towns. Um, and that was acting as basically both a physical barrier. So people from one side of the town found it really hard to get to the other side. They couldn't walk because of this highway. But it was also a social um, concern as well. It was creating this social disconnect between the two parts of the town. Um, but for another town, it was, it was smaller things. It was some signage, um, a seat in a particular spot would be really helpful, um, some dog poo bags in certain areas. So it's just some smaller, relatively low-cost things that the community wanted um, to, to create more walkable areas. So we're able to then provide a, a report back to that community. Each of our communities said they'd like that information shared in a report and they've actually used that and are using that as an advocacy tool. So the community can then, for example, lobby their local council state government um, or use it to apply for funding to create some of those changes and, and address some of those priority issues. I really like the use of the spatial data that you're able to capture and then kind of having communities mystery shop it and say, well, is this actually useful on the pragmatic yep. ground level and then also giving them the tools so they can make changes because maybe they've become hyper vigilant from the process of being a citizen scientist for your project um is there any like evidence like long term what would be the goal here that if these communities become more walker friendly will that actually lead to higher levels of incidental physical activity do you think or yeah. Um, what's kind of the long-term hope yeah, there? Yeah, that would be the long-term hope that by creating more walkable, walkable environments that people are walking more often for um, leisure and to get to and from places. Um, we're not trying to make that connection in this study. We know from our studies in cities that more walk people that live in more walkable spaces are more physically active. So I guess our underlying assumption is that if we can create more walkable rural communities and rural towns, that that in, in the future will happen. So our project is more about how you create walkable um, rural communities and small towns rather than the then does it impact on physical mm. activity. And even just getting a, a feel for how walkable they are because you were saying all the work's been done in urban settings. Spot on. Yeah, so Absolutely. that's really interesting that it's really kind of taking what we know is useful in one setting where there's lots of resources actually, mostly in urban settings, and thinking about really communities that it needs. One thing that I love that you're doing is using citizen scientists, which um, I just love that idea, and I, I like so hope I get to work with citizen scientists someday. Um, but what do you think are some of the strengths of this approach 
What types of data are you going to get? You said there before that you might notice lots of people all have the same problem. Is there a certain number of people from each community you need to have to make sure that your data is reliable? So what kind of things did you have to think through as a sign as being like, I'm going to mobilise the community? <laughs> really good questions. And look, citizen science, um, I guess, yeah, thinking about citizen science historically it hasn't been used a lot in public health research to date in, in my field, but it has been used for a long time and quite extensively in your more of your environmental sciences. So people think about your, um, I don't know, your eagle counts and your, you know, looking out for weeds and particular um, things in the ocean, for example, with people fishing and, and spotting different um, breeds and varieties of, of fauna and 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 flora but in the public health space it's a relatively new approach to for us to be collecting data and there are a number of strengths and limitations and we are learning as we go this is the first time I've done citizen science so while participatory approaches have been around in public health for a while this is this is a bit of a different angle so some of the strengths I think we've really you know, you've touched on those Neve in that um it, it's there's that sense of empowerment um, for the community, so um, they are able to have their say. They're able to participate. It's it's capacity building. You know, it's building skills in in a community. It's giving a community a voice. From a, a researcher pers- perspective, it, it really I think it really provides um, insights into those lived experiences of communities that that we just don't understand if you know if we're trying to impose you know come at it from our perspective we're essentially imposing our views and values on on the data that are being collected so what citizen science does is it flips that um that flips that narrative so that the stories are coming from the communities so it's very much about empowering people and giving them the opportunity and the tools um to to tell us what the stories that need to be told the, the limitations, um, what often happens in citizen science and in a lot of science actually, a lot of um, research, is that we sometimes miss um, the quieter voices. So people who may not um, typically engage in research are also um, unlikely to participate in citizen science unless you have specific dedicated resources and strategies to try and engage with those quieter voices. Um, so sometimes there's that lack of diversity and you may not capture everything um, and all of the issues that a community might have. Um, but I guess what we do is try our hardest um, to encourage our community champions to ensure that they're reaching and, and, and reaching out to lots of different people within the community. Um, one great example is a, a community we'll be working with on the West Coast. Um, our contacts there have great net, um, networks and, and insights, um, have been working a lot with the um, Aboriginal community, so we're hoping to have some engagement there. Um, and it's just something that we're really mindful of. So we'll be trialling a few different things um, t- to address that particular limitation. I really love that approach that it's... Um, I so you summed it up nicely that it's research with the community rather than on a community. And I think that if we want to bring people with us and actually 
improve local areas, you've got to have the local community with you because yeah. I think a lot of science in the past has just tried to put things on people and be like, here's yes. a solution, enjoy, yes. Yes. and then go. Whereas here it's really, you know, engaging people. Absolutely. And that's something that our policy partners, so we work closely with the peak body for local government in Tasmania, the Local Government Association and the um, Tasmanian Department of Health, the Public Health Services, and they really see the benefit in having local... Um, locally identified problems and locally identified solutions. They they think that's one of the key benefits for them um, in terms of influencing what they do and policies and strategies um, is is to have that data created by by communities. What do you hope will be some of the outcomes of this work? Something that we are doing in this project is going back to communities about six months after we've prepared the report for them and we'll interview the community champion and maybe one or two others to ask about whether there has been any action or or anything done as a result of this work. And that might capture some things. Um, but it may not capture everything that, and that time frame is relatively short. Um, as you said before, changing environments is really hard um, and it can take a long time. So we may capture some things there, but I guess, you know, down the track, yes, we would love to see that people are using this work as an advocacy tool and we've we've seen some evidence of that already from our pilot project last year where the, a report that we did for one of our three towns in 2020 has been tabled at a council meeting um, and the council are very supportive and they're on the lookout for funding to fix a particular issue that was identified through that report. And it was really felt that having the credibility of the university behind that report as well as having the community voice was a real strength of that as, as an advocacy tool um, to try and secure some money to, to change. So last little bit, if people want to get involved with your project, they want to be a citizen scientist, where can they get more information? Yeah, you can jump on the Menzies website or you can Google Communities for Walkability. Um, you can contact me through through Neve um, and, and we'll help you out. Our three towns for uh, this year that we're working with is um, St Helens on the east coast, beautiful St Helens, um, Zeon over on the west coast and Snug um, in the south. So We'll work with another seven towns next year, um, but for this year, that's where we're starting. So if you live in any of those three towns and you really want to get involved, you can drop me an email, get in touch with Neve, jump on the Menzies website, um, you'll find some information there. And we'd love to hear from you. This is what it's all about. We want to hear from our communities and our community members because you guys have so much um, knowledge and um, some really creative ways for Um, solving problems as well and we'd love to hear those absolutely thanks so much Verity what a fantastic project thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science we love bringing you science related content especially with a bit of Tazzy flair if you liked the show you can always get in touch with us by searching on your social media channel but also you can catch all of our previous episodes on demand wherever you get your podcast or by searching thatscience.org my name is Dr Neve Chapman once again I'd like to thank my expert guest Associate Professor Verity Cleland from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research until next time thanks and goodbye This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. 
You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.